Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast, Tropics, and the newly launched Sunburst Chico, are now offering free overnight shipping on domestic orders of $1,000 or more. All California orders ship free. Berkeley Yeast, ordinary yeast made extraordinary. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. Everybody knows that yeast plays one of the most important roles in brewing, no matter the style and recipe you choose. Yeast simultaneously influences flavor, aroma, acidity, brightness, and mouthfeel and brewing a lager is no exception. Discover our entire SAF lager range at fermentus.com, where you'll find yeast for traditional to modern style lagers. What you're about to hear originally aired in August of 2018. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. If you go into a pub in the UK and you order a pint of cask beer, you expect it to be perfectly clear. And if it's not clear, you send it back. This week on the show, cask beer. We talk ingredients, process, best practices, and authenticity, all right here on the Master Brewers Podcast. My name is Marcus Cox. I work for Mindful Brewing Company out of Pittsburgh. Before you uh, immigrated to the U.S., your brewing career began in Australia. How did you first get into cask beer? Did you encounter a lot of real ale in Australia? Uh, no. So the, the climate is, is probably the main impact there, both in terms of potential cellar temperature and also obviously the ambient temperature. It's, it's much warmer than the U.K., so it's, it's not a big thing. Um, but purely by coincidence, was for a, a super small brewery called Three Ravens. And um, they had two customers when I joined, and uh, they were both cask customers. So uh, that was 15 years ago. We were the only brewery in that town, in that city, selling cask beer at the time. I guess we should talk about ingredients for cask beers. How about malt protein content? Why does that matter for cask beer? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, again, my, my perspective is on it's, it's very hard to define modern cask beer so i defer to the the real cask beer that you get you know made in the uk at at an english pub maybe in london or something so that's very much my point of reference for these comments uh one thing to remember is that um the protein comment is based on the fact that this is a beer that has a very fast processing and doesn't have any chill stabilization 
If you go into a pub in the UK and you order a pint of cask beer, you expect it to be perfectly clear. And if it's not clear, you send it back. Tying that in with the protein, the lower protein content obviously ends up with a clearer beer. And in the absence of chill stabilization, it all just makes sense. Sounds good. And we've learned from some other uh, episodes, especially with uh, Joe Hertrick, about some of the differences in protein content for European versus uh, North American barley. Do you want to comment on kind of, you know, some of the typical ranges you see there and perhaps, you know, what types of barley are are most commonly used in the UK for these type of beers? Sure. Um, I I think over time, the the barley market or the barley providers have have stabilized a lot of these specifications. So it's probably a little bit less different now than it was traditionally. Uh, Obviously, with the American move from from six row to two row in... um, the uptake of craft beer, that's that's made a, a big change. But, you know, classically, typically, UK malt comes in well under 10%. And this is just a very broad generalization looking at some of the main suppliers like Simpson and Beds and those kind of large medium companies, where if you have a look at something from Brees, and again, these are, these are very coarse numbers, it's, it's generally plus or minus 12.5% for a two-row base malt. So it doesn't sound like much, but it is enough to make a difference in terms of clarity. Um, and then maybe to tie that back into brew house processing, um, you know, uh, protein content is inverse to extract. So the lower the protein content, the more extract we're getting. When you're doing an English style beer with a single step infusion in a very simplistic mash tun type situation, uh, you'll take that extra extract every day. All right. How about hops? Hops. Well, I mean, hops are. A little bit more interesting, and again, you know, looking at the a couple of traditional uh, English varieties, you know, Fuggles and, and the, the Goldings variants, um, the thing that really stands out is they tend to have lower alpha and beta acid. Um, so that's something that really, you know, separates them from obviously New World hops and, and American hops included in that. Uh, there's very little geraniol present, um, higher humulone levels, so there's a, a particular softness to them, let's say, lower mercine. Uh, and there's generally no um, beta-pinene present. So this, this has to be a comparative statement, but the interbreeding of the Neomexicanus hops most likely with American new varieties has, has put some of these compounds into the hops. The English varieties tend not to have them and are much more suitable to traditional subtle dry hopping in the cask. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen, but our guest on last week's episode uncovered literature from 1893, which indicated one of the major reasons for dry hopping was to get those hop enzymes into the beer and encourage a secondary fermentation and dry out the beer. How important do you consider that to the process? Uh, It's certainly not something that's included in, obviously, classical literature. Um, Having seen the presentation at the the Eastern Technical Conference uh, a couple of months back, that was definitely one of the things that caught my eye. Um, It's it's certainly something we see anecdotally currently at Mindful uh, with tank dry hopping. Um, It makes sense, but I don't think all the evidence is there to prove that it has, you know, it just hasn't been substantiated yet. Okay, uh, what's most important when it comes to yeast selection for cask beers? Uh, there's a couple of things. Um, anything to do with diacetyl goes out the window. So uh, the, the position is that diacetyl is an acceptable component of classic English cask beer. So you don't need a heavily diacetyl reducing yeast. The second component, which obviously is inherently linked to that, is that you need high flocculation. So you're talking about a beer that's going to undergo 
secondary fermentation in a sideways sitting cask that has to fall about 12 to 14 inches from top to bottom. Uh, you need something that's going to do that in a couple of days, so high flocculation. All right, do you want to comment on the role of Britannomyces in cask beer? Um, again, this is, this is something that was flagged relatively recently by, by Ron Patterson um, in some of his writings. So it's, it's, again, another thing that's just kind of popped up that's yet to be fully substantiated, but it would appear that, obviously, given the name of the yeast, the time it was isolated, um, it's inherently linked to the British brewing industry. Um, the concept of... Uh, at a particular time in England, there, were, there was a tax regime that taxed different aged beer differently. Um, the aged beer that would contain Brettomyces is, is the contemporary thinking. All right. What about the biggest ingredient, water? So, obviously, the, the breakthrough positioning here is when um, Burton-on-Trent became the, the brewing capital of the world. And they're particularly, you know, high, high degree of sulfates um, and a back note of um, Epsom salts and magnesium sulfate generated a really specific water profile that was amenable higher hopped beers. And higher hopped obviously is a slightly different meaning because you're talking about much lower alpha acids than what we're used to now, but it helped to accentuate uh, the hoppiness of the beers. Um, so basically, once I think in what the, I've got to check my references, but once the concept of burdenization was isolated um, by industrial chemists and, and brought back to, to the rest of the UK, that, that was really the, the major profile used across the whole country so the water is all these ingredients are super critical but the water is the one that's the easiest to reproduce because you just have to very simply alter the mineral profile i've seen folks use dextrose honey where you name it to prime casks what's best practice and what's considered most authentic most authentic is to um leave enough residual fermentables in the cask to ferment itself um Again, it's it's more anecdotal, but that that as you mentioned, the potential for that for that dry hopping in the cask to um, to spur a further fermentation is definitely in the mix. But the, you either have the wort that the beer is made from, or you have enough residual fermentables in in the near finished beer to perform that secondary fermentation. Coming up. So that's the trade-off. You're allowing these, these uh, non-desirable compounds to vent off, and you're allowing oxygen to come in. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Sponsored by CanCraft. Stressed about packaging and can supply? Don't worry, CanCraft's team of design and aluminum specialists are here to make things easy by supporting you every step of the way. From aluminum cans to lids to PackTech can carriers to design help, CanCraft can provide you with a full-service packaging experience from design to delivery. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com slash CanCraft to get started. 
Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. Grist Analytics is the leading quality and production control software platform built by and for craft brewers. The unique cloud-based application gives the unprecedented ability to capture data your way and correlate it across the brewery. Get real-time feedback on the brew deck, analyze correlations from the lab, and track brewery performance while listening to this podcast. Grist Analytics helps you skip past hours of sorting through spreadsheets and paper logs to making informed decisions that drive efficiency and deliver better beer with confidence. GristAnalytics.com Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting at End of the Hills in Kerrville is August 4th through the 6th. District Midwest has a summer meeting August 5th at the Yellow Springs Barrel Room. District Milwaukee meets at the Molson Coors Miller Inn September 21st. The world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science Course begins September 29th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. District Michigan's fall meeting will be at Founders Brewing in Grand Rapids October 19th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. to the show. Talk a bit about timing and temperatures when filling casks and also that balance of yeast to fermentables. Sure. So, I mean, these these yeasts uh, are relatively high flocculators, which means they're not um, they're not the best uh, attenuators. So, 
what happens there is that I think while maybe the dry hopping has a, a contribution to make, the main thing that inspires that secondary fermentation is just mixing the beer back up. Um, it's sufficiently roused in effect to, to form that secondary fermentation. Um, the secondary fermentation conditioning temperature comes in at about um, 54 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and you're looking about half a million cells per mil to, to make that happen. One thing that um, is really critical with these beers, and I'm, I'm probably going off, off the question a little bit, but this, this number, this 54, 55 degrees F or something in that range is going to come up again and again and again. The beer is secondarily conditioned at this temperature. It is served at this temperature. It's in the glass at around this temperature. This temperature is the driving force of what happens downstream with this product. You mentioned a couple of days for settling time earlier. Is that what's typical or is uh, are you typically requiring something different there? Um, it, it's going to be in relation, obviously, to the, the starting gravity of the beer and, and the residual fermentables available. Um, Clarity is a really good indication of, of a, a completed secondary fermentation. Um, th there's a very English concept of uh, describing a beer as coming on. So once, once that secondary conditioning is taking place in the cellar, the beer stays in the same place. It doesn't get moved, and it's, it's super critical. So where it's conditioned is where it's dispensed from. The guy, the classic image of a Friday night with the guy running out with the magical little firkin and throwing it on the bar for dispense is, is a little bit kind of out of the realm for me. So that's, that's what's happening there. 54 degrees conditioning, 52, 54 for dry hopping, which obviously occurs simultaneously to the, to the conditioning. Um, the clarification, again, at that same temperature, 52, 53, 54, 55, that also lands us in a place where the saturation of CO2 that's been generated from the secondary ferment is perfect for the style of beer, which is about 1.15 gas volumes. So that's like basically half of... Yeah, it's, it's less than half a, a commercial American beer. It's, it's temperature dependent. So because a correct cast beer is dispensed at a particular temperature and... Yeah, you're going to get because, Yeah, Correct. And because it's vented, it's effectively... There's a, there's a saturation of CO2 in the liquid, which may take it a little bit higher depending on whether uh, the life cycle of the beer, whether it's the first day of tapping or the third day of tapping. But at zero PSI, the balancing point is always going to be that 1.15 gas volumes. All right. Talk about the, the role of oxidation in cask beer. Is it all negative or are there some benefits too? Well, I think there are some benefits. Um, Obviously, anything that undergoes a secondary fermentation this rapidly is going to have some, some uh, aromatic compounds that are not necessarily desirable. Um, so that's the trade-off. You're allowing these, these uh, non-desirable compounds to vent off, and you're allowing oxygen to come in. A lot of these beers are crystal malt forward, so you know you're talking between 5, 15, 20% crystal malt. And that's probably the most reactive compound in there that's going to oxidize. Um, the shelf life of these beers is so short that the benefits outweigh any negatives from the oxidization. And again, this is an anecdotal, but there's a curiosity that a cask is sideways. It's, you know, it's, it's basically a barrel of beer lying on its side in appearance. Um, this is very beneficial for the precipitation of the yeast during the secondary fermentation, but I think deliberately it allows a greater surface area to interact with the oxygen and to allow the beer to mature, even if it is a very brief period of maturation when it's open. 
What about dispensing their beer engines and gravity taps, cooling jackets, widgets, and all kinds of other accessories? What's, what's most important? And maybe comment on authenticity versus quality. So I'm actually going to bundle authenticity and quality together. Um, I, I will put the caveat on this that in, in the UK, um, breweries tend to be medium size and very regional. And it's a little bit different to here in the US. There, there's a, a tight house system where breweries physically own a lot of the pubs that their beers dispensed in. So it's in their best interest to, pre interest to present them in the best way. Um, I'd, to keep it simple, I'd subscribe to the, to the camera definition of, of cask beer, so the campaign for real ale, um, and say that gravity dispense is great, you know, beer pump dispense is great, um, any extraneous CO2 um, that is uh, put into the cask at any point takes it off the list of an authentic cask. Um, the, the bottom line is a lot of the beers I've seen in the US described as cask beer by this definition are not cask beer. Makes sense. What are, what are the most common mistakes you see brewers making when attempting cask beers? Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a very delicate balance. I mean, the, the biggest challenge probably faced in the US is that there isn't necessarily a market for cask beer. So you walk into a pub in London and they're going to have a number of casks on. They're probably owned by a brewery. You're going to have your selection of four or five different beers and they sell in those very brief time frames of, you know, three to five days when the beer is at its best. Um, so over here, that's not necessarily the case. So without that, you know, without that, that history and, and without that kind of commitment to cask beer, it's very challenging to find cask beer in, in fresh condition in the US. And often you see it um, uh, kind of fashionably, fashionably dosed up with uh, extraneous things that maybe don't belong in cask beer. During the Victorian period, it's obviously the, you know, the pinnacle of, of cask and up until 1880 in the UK, there was a tax on um, malt. So very quickly, brewers prior to 1880 in the UK, which is obviously the, the kind of birth time of cask beer, were very amenable to using non-malted products, um, obviously with access, access to the Caribbean, a lot of sugars came into the mix, using non-malted products, using maize and stuff like that. There is a, there is a, a tradition of using not just all malt in cask beer, but um, as I said, it, it doesn't necessarily extend to these other crazy things like banana purees and that kind of stuff. Probably the number one thing you hear from folks unfamiliar with cask beer is, who wants to drink warm, flat beer? How do you respond to that? How do you describe the romance of real ale? Uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to describe. Um, I was making cask beer before I'd ever been to the UK, and I was working with a lot uh, had the pleasure of meeting Roger, Roger Protst, and he came and visited me in Australia, and um, he gave me a lot of hints and tips on how to make cask beer better. Um, you, you, you don't know the real experience until you go to the place. So it, it's obviously everybody, but cask beer is something you walk into a pub, you drink it, it's a pint, it's not very expensive. People that are well-dressed, people that are not well-dressed are drinking it. It's just what everybody drinks in, in the UK. You, it's, it's all about the experience. Cask beer is, even with the, the wonderland that is the UK, it's, it's, it's heavily in decline. Um, it's, it's an instant camera, the, the, the body that drives the organization of cask beer from the consumer level um, has dropped from about 200,000 members down to about 160,000. Um, 
Cask beer is an anachronism. It's not necessarily best defined as a contemporary product. It needs a way forward. It, it needs to make friends with um, craft beer, and they need to find a middle path where, where craft beer and cask beer can coexist, uh, both here and in the UK, with slightly different contexts. That was Marcus Cox here on the Master Brewers podcast. Marcus is a member of District Pittsburgh, which was recently resurrected. Now, here's a message from the district president. Hi, my name is uh, Dan Yarnell. I'm a brewer over at Rivertown uh, Brewing in Export, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. I've been brewing professionally for uh, about eight, nine years now. Uh, and I am the president of the local uh, chapter here uh, in Pittsburgh for the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Uh, initially, uh, the MBA started in Pittsburgh in 1935 and then went defunct in the late 2000s. So we've we've had about 10 years where um, there's, there's really nothing, uh, so to speak. We were taken over by the Philadelphia uh, chapter, and then earlier this year, I believe it was February, that's when we did uh, reinstate uh, the chapter um, status. So for any brewers out there that um, that are in kind of the western Pennsylvania and they're, and they're looking for a local chapter, uh, please contact us uh, via either Facebook or through the MBA website, um, and all the contact information would be right there. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Can't stop, can't stop, can't stop, can't stop, can't stop.